0: Hello and welcome to Franklin Covey's On Leadership series. My name is Scott Miller and I serve as your host as we interview thought leaders from around the world, beginning today in our new studio here at our headquarters in Salt Lake City. I am honored today to have Susan Cain, the renowned researcher, scientist, speaker, practitioner, and author of the runaway best-selling book, Quiet, the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. Susan's Burke book has sold millions of copies, impacted or world, lives worldwide, and today joins us from the East Coast to talk to us about quiet. Susan, welcome.
1: Thank you, Scott. It's so great to be here with you. I know we've been talking for a while about doing this, we have. It's an honor to have you Hello. here today. My sense it is that we're it finally happened.
0: We're looking forward to a great hour because you have a raging introvert who's or extrovert <laughs> who's um, interviewing. I'm guessing an introvert, so should make for a good hour. Absolutely. If I was to write a book, I am certain it would be called Loud. <laughs> Tell us a bit <laughs> about your journey to write this book. I've, I've I've watched your TED Talk, which has been viewed by almost 20 million people. Um, I always like to start the interviews with a bit about the person's journey. Maybe start with that um, endearing, but somewhat awkward um, summer camp story and how you came to, uh, to write this book and the influence it's having, not just on introverts, but on extra, extroverts as well.
1: Yeah, well, I, I mean, I guess you're talking about the, um, the story I told in my TED talk, um, which is from the time that I went to summer camp right. when I was nine years old. And uh, my mom, and, 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 you know, and I was going off to camp for eight weeks, and my mom packed this suitcase full of books for me, which in the, the culture of the family that I grew up in was a really natural thing to do. We were like this very quiet and scholarly family. Um, and I had this vision of going off to camp and being with all my new friends, all reading our books together. And um, I got to camp on the very first day and was instead confronted uh, not with the, the, the dream I had been imagining, but rather this counselor who said that she was going to teach us a cheer for us to do for the rest of the summer, um, and the cheer was, some of you may have heard this before, it was R-O-W-D-I-E, that's the way we spell Rowdy, 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 let's get Rowdy. And um, I, I couldn't figure out, like, why were we supposed to be so Rowdy? Why did we have to spell the word incorrectly? And uh, and I, I wondered about it. I've kind of been wondering about it ever since. Um, so in that case, I kind of learned to do the cheer and I learned to enjoy it. But the real takeaway for me from it was that I should be a sort of rowdier and more extroverted version of myself, not only for that summer but into the rest of my life. Um, and so, so what ended up happening was. Uh, I, I was kind of always impersonating, trying to impersonate an extrovert to the best of my ability, um, and that meant for me that I ended up practicing corporate law for almost ten years. It took me a really long time to get into writing, which is what I had always wanted to do, um, and and that was because I was in this kind of reflexive habit of always uh, not following my own preferences, but rather the ones that I felt I was supposed to follow, and and. Um, and I looked around me and I realized that this was happening throughout our culture, you know, in our schools, especially, in our workplaces, especially, uh, and, and that it's a mistake. And so I guess I've been spending the last, how long has it been? I started writing Quiet in 2005. So ever since then, I've been, I guess, fighting this fight to, to um, try to use the power of everyone's natural temperament instead of shoehorning all of us into a pretty narrow temperamental
0: straitjacket. Susan, I learned of your book a couple of years ago with my brother Mike, who is yeah. kind of the opposite of me in every way. My brother is a very competent, I'm somewhat competent, but very competent, <laughs> well-educated professional, you know, has an MBA from MIT, a master's in chemical engineering, master black belt in Six Sigma, whatever that means. And he's also you know, an, an, an introvert. And I think sometimes he wishes he had my extrovert personality. And I sure wish I had his MBA from MIT. But, you know, your voice has given, your book has given voice to my brother. He's read it several times and he brought it to me Mm -hmm. and thought I might benefit as well as he has, but it's kind of like his second Bible. Why do you Mm -hmm. think quiet has touched so many lives, both those who are extroverts and introverts?
1: Yeah, I think it's because um, this question of whether we're introverted or extroverted or somewhere in between, it's not just like, an interesting parlor game type of cover uh, um, it's not just like an interesting conversation for a parlor game it's really fundamental this is one of the first things that i learned when i started researching my book um, that most personality psychologists who who agree on nothing else ag- agree on this point that that introversion and extroversion are the most fundamental aspect of personality And they govern so much about who we are and how do we relate to the world and how do we relate to each other and how do we do our best work and how do we show up in relationships, all of it. So this is really core fundamental stuff. And now you you take this fundamental stuff and and put it alongside this massive cultural bias that has been telling us for a century really that um, the the 50% of us who are more introverted that there's something wrong with that core fundamental way of being, um, you know, and that's that's pretty big, really. And and so if you if you were to look at all the thousands of letters that I get, and I'm sure if you did a search in my inbox for what is the most commonly used word that shows up in those letters, the word you would see is permission, because um, what I hear from people all the time is that. Until recently, they have not felt that they had the permission hmm. to be their true selves and to use their true gifts. Hmm. And so hopefully that's what we're in the process of undoing as a culture right now.
0: You know, your books had a massive impact on me. And I think by every standard, my book would be called loud if I wrote one. I'm <laughs> a, I, I, I think by every standard, I'm an extrovert. But it's also kind of rocked my world because I'm trying to figure out. so you know, do I like who I am, and is it working, and how does it cloud my view of others? And I've I've had some own introspection on how did I become this, I keep using the term, raging extrovert. And as I've thought about it, and something you just said is, I think in many ways I've adopted that persona, which may or may not be my natural persona. I can remember back as an early kid, you know, before teens, I was happy and bubbly, but I was also kind of retiring and shy. And it wasn't until my (laughs) teen years, When a lady moved across the street from me in my neighborhood i grew up in um, central florida and Mm -hmm. she was very successful professionally socially had a fairly loud outgoing almost brash personality got what she wanted kind of steamrolled over people and i saw her as sort of the the icon of success you know Mm -hmm. fancy home and big cars and vacations and I'll, i'll be honest i think in many ways i chose subconsciously consciously to adopt some of her personality you know loud gregarious outgoing people get what they want and those who are shy and retiring don't and so i think in some ways perhaps i need therapy different webcasts but i'm (laughs) guessing i hear from you that's not so uncommon that we tend to adopt sometime identities that we think work for us when in fact they're not our natural selves i think i did the same
1: yeah wow and so i I mean i'm going to turn around and ask you a question which is if you had the ability, um, pretend you've got all day on a Saturday and you have no social, family, professional
0: obligations. How would you want to spend your time? Oh, definitely alone, Uh, no no question. In fact, most of my friends will say, Scott, you're so good at working a room or at a dinner party. And I say, no, I mean, I have to like gird my loins and go do it. I'm not natural. Mm -hmm. I would absolutely like to be reading these books, perhaps with my kids or my wife at my home. But I, I prefer to eat meals alone in restaurants as opposed to with other people.
1: Yeah, wow. And so, I mean, is it taking a toll on you to spend so much of your time doing, behaving in a way that isn't natural
0: to you? Well, I feel like it's a therapy session now. Okay. (laughs) To answer (laughs) your question, yes, it's very taxing. Absolutely. And I think I tend to overcommit and overcompensate by committing to more social obligations to keep it going. I think I need therapy.
1: yeah and what might be happening to you too, there's this term that the psychologist Brian little uses of uh, reputational confusion, which is like once you start behaving in a certain way um, as as you're describing, you get a reputation for being that guy, right? Like the really social out there guy. And so then more and more not only opportunities but expectations come your way to act like that guy, and it becomes harder and harder to to get off of that. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I was struck by so many things when you were describing your story because you were talking about the, um, the I guess, the, the houses and cars or whatever, um, the markers of success that this woman had. Um, but, I, I, okay, the following thing is going to sound possibly cliched, possibly hokey, but I would say the biggest marker of success we can all have is the ability to be ourselves in our own skin as for as much of our days as possible um, and, and as I say that I want to say there, it's, it's a little more complicated than that because it's also true and, and here I'm going back to Professor Brian Little again, um, it, it's also true that in some ways what matters most for a really good life is to identify what your most core, most passionate projects are um, in this world. Um, the things you most care about. And they usually have to do with questions of love and questions of work. Um, And and you kind of do what it takes in a good life to make sure that those personal projects actually get done. And in order to make our personal projects happen, usually you do have to act out of character some of the time. Um, And you do have to sometimes step outside your comfort zone. So I'm not saying that the best life is the one Where you know, if you're an introvert, let's say that you're always behaving in an introverted way. Um, But I would say the best life is one where you know what your 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 core projects are. You you go outside your comfort zone in kind of small doses to make those projects happen. But the rest of the time, you get to be you. Um, And even during the times when you're not exactly you, you're doing it in the service of something that really, really matters to you. Um, So I mean, just give you one example. I was actually one, one, literally on stage giving a keynote talk to a company and, and talking about what I just said. And as I was speaking, I was thinking, oh my gosh, my husband's 15th birthday is coming up, and I really need to make a big party for him. And I'm not really a natural party thrower, but you know, I like came off the stage and a few days later started planning this gigantic surprise party, um, which ended up being really lovely. And so that was kind of acting out of character, but you're doing it for for a great purpose, right? Um, and you're not and, and you're not out of character all the time. That's really the key. So you're spending as many Saturday afternoons as you can, um, where you have no obligations and you're doing things the way you'd want to do them.
0: So beyond being horrified that in the first five minutes you gave me a diagnosis of reputational confusion, <laughs> as an introvert, Susan, is this type of interview difficult for you? I mean, I know you speak in front of you know hundreds of audiences a year, keynotes, thousands of people. How do you find your own kind of congruence in that as, an, as a self-described introvert?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. It's actually really no longer difficult for me. Um, when my book first came out this kind of thing was really hard um and you know on the first day it came out i think i gave 31 interviews in one day so it was like you know i kind of went from seven years of splendid solitude of sitting at home and writing my book to suddenly you know being out there in a massive way so at the beginning it was hard but after a while it stopped being um partly because you get used to things even if they're hard at the beginning and partly because I am doing work that I'm so passionate about and that really carries me forward. Um, And I think that's a huge thing that we all forget. So, you know, like even if you're sitting at your company and your next big public outing is, I don't know what, reporting on sales figures, like there's always some way of digging into that thing that you're out there talking about that feels that feels to you like a source of a core conviction. And I think that's really the best place to live. And I guess I'd say, if you're listening to this and thinking, gosh, the the things that I'm called upon to speak about publicly, I I can't find the way to any passion or conviction about them, then that's probably a sign that you might want to make some kind of shift, because no one should be living that way.
0: Susan, you talk in your book in chapter two, which is probably my favorite chapter, is the myth of charismatic leadership. Talk a bit about Mm -hmm. your research that led to that and and give some context for that for people who may not have read the book yet.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's the idea that um, I think if most of us are honest with ourselves, when we think of the person who would make a good leader, we're imagining somebody who's charismatic, um, who's quite, type A, extroverted, bold. I mean, you, you know the type of person that I'm talking about. And and those indeed can be amazing qualities for leadership, for sure. Um, but we're leaving a lot of great leadership talent on the table when we look at it in, in such a narrow way. Um, and there's a lot of interesting studies about this that are out there. Um, so one of my favorites comes from Jim Collins. I'm sure many Uh, the people listening today have read his book good to great and so you know that he 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 looked at the top 11 best performing companies in the country and he wanted to figure out what set these companies apart and he found that every single one of these companies was led by a ceo who had two main characteristics um the first one was that they were uh The first one was that they had a kind of fierce sense of will and dedication to the company. And the second one was that they're described by their peers with this whole constellation of adjectives, like shy, quiet, unassuming, soft-spoken. So it's this whole group of adjectives that we would tend to think of as having nothing to do with leadership. But if you have been doing this as long as I have, it, this data is not as surprising as it would first seem because what happens with introverts is that they tend to go really deep in their lives into one or two areas of passion. Um, and so in the service of those, those passions, like if you have someone who's really into their job, let's say, they're going to end up acquiring expertise and building up networks. and And so they end up kind of ascending to leadership positions, not because they're a so-called natural leader, but because they have this deep well of commitment to what they're doing. And and that ends up being a really potent channel to leadership.
0: Susan, how does someone fundamentally recognize whether they're an introvert or an extrovert? And you you call it kind of a middle term in your book. Is it um, an ambivert? Or well, what's the word for the middle? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, well, there's two quick uh, uh, tests I think you can give yourself. The first, First one is the one that I asked you, Scott. Like, imagine that you have a day to yourself, no obligations. Be truthful about how would you want to spend it. Um, You can also ask yourself how you feel when you show up at a party that you're truly enjoying, with company that you truly enjoy, and how do you feel at the end of two hours of that party? Um, So, for if you're more of an extrovert, it's as if you have an internal battery that is getting charged by being at that party, and so. you're going to emerge from the two hours full of energy. And if you're an introvert, it doesn't matter how socially skilled you might be, your internal battery is probably draining during those two hours. And so you're starting to you know, kind of get antsy and wish you could go home. Um, and and that, that feeling of that internal battery and what does it tend to do in which kinds of circumstances can tell you so much about who you are.
0: Do you think people change over their lives and careers? Do they ebb back and forth? Should they? What's been your experience and research around, is someone kind of born an introvert and stays that way for life? Or what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's complicated because these are some of the most heritable personality traits, so you you can actually trace them in in babies as young as four days old. Um, But at the same time, all of us can and should develop all kinds of skills as as we move on in our lives so you know if you're born more extroverted and and for you uh, and for, for extroverts the, the liability is more um, difficulty being in quieter situations your your nervous system is primed to make you feel kind of listless and sluggish um, when you're in a situation like that so but but still you might be born that way but over time you might develop the skill of meditating or just a feeling comfortable um, in your in your solitude and that's a really important thing so you're still an extrovert but you've got that skill and and introverts do the reverse they they might um, be born introverts but develop the skill of being really good at a cocktail party like the way you were describing scott um, so it, it so so it, it ends up being this kind of mishmash but a lot of the time what's not changing your, your, your fundamental preference of who you are isn't changing, but you develop so many skills that you layer on top of that that you end up kind of a lot more complex than you first started.
0: Yeah, Susan, to that point, also in your book, you talk about the value that's been placed on, I think you call it verbal fluency and sociability as two major you know kind of success indicators. And yeah. I bought into that early in life. I felt that some of the most influential, successful, powerful people you know, whether it be, um, you know, successful business people or, you know, politicians had a real strong sense of both of those. And I worked myself, I mean, all these books in the studio, I've read all these books and mm-hmm. magazines and newspapers to build my own vocabulary and verbal fluency. Is it a myth? Do you think that has been perpetuated by schools? You've got a point of view on that. It, I'm sorry, is what a myth that is the, the, the notion of verbal fluency and sociability being, you know, kind of a key indicator of success.
1: Oh, I see. Um, I think those are helpful skills for everyone to develop to some extent. Uh, I think that we're we're just in a situation in our culture where it's all over-exaggerated, right? So, of course, it's helpful to be verbally fluent, you know, and, of course, it's helpful to be mathematically literate, and, of course, it's helpful to be a, a deep and thoughtful listener, and, you know, and I could go on with a whole list. I, I think the problem that we've got in our culture is that we we're, we're so overvaluing uh, the verbal fluency and so on, and undervaluing some of these other traits. And so I, I think we just need to get to more of a state of balance. Uh,
0: so as a self-described extrovert, but now that you've prescribed me or diagnosed me as reputational <laughs> confusion, I, 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 so I'm kind of having an identity crisis right now on live on air. I, I've always Are. tended to believe the adage that people like people like themselves. And uh-huh. I tend hmm. to like to hire, recruit and surround myself with people that are high energy, what I would call outgoing energy mm-hmm. infusers. And I get, I get quite frustrated with otherwise very competent people who tend to be more thoughtful, more deliberate, quiet. Um, I, I find myself often saying to my team, can you say it faster and shorter for me, right? <laughs> Do you find that in organizations, extroverted leaders, tend to prejudice those who are introverted and more quiet? And what are some ways that people like me could be uh, you know, better valuers of those who are more introverted?
1: Huh, I mean, it's interesting. So there is a lot of data showing that introverts tend to get passed over for leadership positions, even though once they're in those positions, um, they do. They Like, there's there just a recent stat that um, CEOs, when, the introverts, once they get promoted to CEO tend to slightly outperform extroverts in those roles. Um, but bottom line is, you know, both types can do really well, but introverts get passed over. Um, but what I what I think the takeaway is for you or for someone in your position is that the, the best functioning teams and organizations are the ones who really do have both types in place. Because it's 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 actually hard to imagine a complex task getting done if you don't have the kind of quick high energy people you know seize the day, push it forward, you, you've got you need that. and then you need the sort of more thoughtful and deliberate people who will be like, okay, wait a minute, let's think about this subtlety. let's think about this thing that might um, might go wrong and what can we do to protect against it? Life nowadays is too, and our, our um, corporate tasks are too complex to not have both of those inputs coming. And when you look at many organizations, you see people either consciously or unconsciously uh, um, aligning themselves in this way. So you know, for example, at Facebook, you've got Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, as, uh, introvert and extrovert. And they actually uh, came up with that pairing deliberately, knowing that it would be greater than the sum of its two parts.
0: Susan, in my experience, and I've only worked for two major companies in my, you know, 25 years uh, so far in car- in, the, in my career.
1: Oh, uh, wait, I- I'm sorry. Can I say one thing? I'm sure. sorry to interrupt you, no, but sure. just one more thing on that point. Um, I wanted to say that it's also the case. I I, I know, Scott, you were saying that you, you see in yourself a kind of bias to hire people like you, um, but what we often hear from people, and there are studies along these lines that that introverts and extroverts really tend to like being with their opposite type. Because I, I think a lot of us have a feeling of like, we know what we're good at. Um, we know what our deficits are. And we like to be among people who complement them. Um, and there's there's a kind of natural admiration and affinity for people who are unlike you in in temperament. So one of the reasons that teams that have both types work so well is because people tend to be socially happy when they've got that kind of balance.
0: You know, my my experience has been uh, uh, different in that as an extrovert, I find myself with introverts, it's hard to relate, right? Because I'm super Mm -hmm. talkative and I'm very expressive and I sort of have an Mm -hmm. an outward frame of mind. And I feel like as an extrovert, it's my job, it's my responsibility or burden to sort of pull out from them what they're Mm -hmm. thinking. And it, and I, I become frustrated. I'm sure they probably feel that I'm being oppressive and wanting to put them on my on my schedule. And I'm, I'll bet I'm not alone in that. Both on both sides, right, representing the introvert and the extrovert.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm glad that you're being open about this because that is something I hear often from extroverts, and I think it's a good thing for introverts to know that. Um, I think it often seems to introverts as if extroverts are kind of naturally, you know, never running out of anything to say and naturally drawing everybody around them out. Um, but many tell me that it's actually a kind of burden that they feel. It's just the way you, you expressed it just now. Um, so what really comes to my mind as you say that is the importance of teams sitting down and talking about this stuff and how does it play out. Um, and I'll take a step back to what I said at the beginning that This is the most fundamental aspect of human nature. So it's going to govern every one of your interactions as a team. Um, So like in the workshops that we do, or just what we recommend in general, it would say, sit down with your team. Uh, You can maybe have everybody take a personality test. We have a free and easy one that's on our website at Choir Evolution. Um, And use that as a jumping off point to get people talking about who they are, and how they prefer to work, and how do they prefer to spend their time, and how do they prefer to interact. You know, and you you want to get down to questions like, you know, maybe one person does their best work when they feel like their colleagues are checking in on them, checking in with them a few times a day, and another person might do their best work when they're left alone and they can sit and put their head down for three hours at a time and know that they won't be interrupted. And you want to create a space where each of those two people is free to say that that's what they need. And then in, with mutual respect, you can work out how you can accommodate each person's deepest preferences. Um, but, but none of that can happen until you've got the space where everybody can recognize this and talk about it in a way where it's no big deal.
0: Susan, it might be unique to my career, but in my, in my two previous employers, which only had two in about 25 years, as I look back at the most senior influential people most of them tend to have things in common, and perhaps it's, I'm prejudiced, but they seem to be, you know, fairly charismatic and well-spoken and high-energy, at least in formal positions of power. Not every person, obviously, and it seems that Western business tends to really reward that. Any advice you would give, and perhaps your experience has been different than mine, but that has been my experience. Even at Franklin Covey, you seem that you know some of the more senior people tend to be a little more gregarious and outspoken and and perhaps, I don't wanna say a contrived sense of confidence, but you talk about that in your book a little bit. Any advice you might give, or or a comment on that, any advice you might give on people who aren't naturally what I just described, how they can get noticed and build influence in organizations when they're dealing with a company or or employer who does value that for promotion?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess the first thing I would say is I I don't think it's quite as universal as all that. you know, if you look around, this is especially true in Silicon Valley, but really all over, there are lots of people in leadership positions sure. who are much more, um, let's just say, introverted by their nature. Um, and so, I think one of the most powerful things someone can do in that in the position you just described is to identify people who do have a similar temperament to theirs, who are in their field, and who are successful, and kind of. Look at them as a role model and figure out what are they doing, and you know where where are they stretching outside their comfort zone, and where are they figuring out how to draw on their own strengths to 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 do the work that they're doing. Um, so, for example, one one of my favorite examples of this is a guy named Douglas Conan, who you may know, Scott. Yeah, from
0: Campbell. Um, yeah. Pardon? Campbell Soup, right? Our Campbell Soup CEO. Yeah, right? exactly,
1: exactly. Yeah. So he, he was the CEO of Campbell Soup for almost 10 years. Uh, he just retired recently. And Doug is a very shy and introverted guy by his own description. Um, and when he took over at Campbell, they were at the bottom of the Fortune 500 in employee engagement. By the time he stepped down, they were at the top. But again, he's not you know a kind of back-slapping type of guy. And what he used to do was he would identify who were the employees who had really been contributing. And he would sit down and write to them personal letters of thanks for all that they had done for Campbell. And the thing about Doug is he's a really, really sincere, authentic person. And you feel that the minute that you meet him. Um, He kind of reminds me of Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life, if if you've seen that movie. Um, So when you get a letter like that, from a guy like that, it really means a lot. And, and so, yeah, sometimes he had to step outside his comfort zone, but he was also figuring out ways to draw on who he really was. And I think that's the most effective thing that you can be doing. Um, and, and so for someone in the kind of position you were just talking about, I, I would sit down with trusted colleagues and mentors and ask them what they think your great strengths are. Um, and maybe pick like one area to improve on, but we all know by now it's better to focus on your strengths and then figure out how do you make those strengths work.
0: Your story about Doug is great. In fact, his book, Touch Points, is on our studio wall. It's a great book. And ironically, his co-author, I know, Meta Norgard, she is an outgoing, very you know, extroverted person. So it shows that balance right on both sides of those. Absolutely. Maybe it's why you picked Meta to to co co-authors book. I, I want to remind all of our viewers, we invite you to ask any questions to Susan in our Q&A chat pod. I'd love to add them to the list. Susan, you talk in your book also about the power of brainstorming and some of the myths behind, you know, brainstorming and how great ideas happen. Give mm-hmm. us some of your thoughts around how great ideas do and don't come alive. And what are some good tips in the right setting to get the best ideas in an organizational setting out of both introverts and extroverts?
1: Yeah, so there's this whole really interesting line of studies that look at brainstorming. Um, And it's like study after study after study has found that groups of people who brainstorm together produce fewer ideas and and lower quality ideas than individuals who brainstorm by themselves. So there seems to be something about the the process of sitting by yourself and kind of going deep into yourself that can really pull out the, the, the really good ideas. Um, but of course it's not enough to only do that because the ideas need to get communicated. They need to get thought through and so on by, by a team. So what I recommend is a kind of hybrid process where you're having people sitting down and doing the deep thought first, and then they come together to share what they've learned, and you might toggle back and forth between those two states. Um, and and you also want to make sure that when you are at the, the the part where the group is together, you want to make sure that you're actually hearing from everybody. Um, there was this this study out of the Kellogg School that found that in your typical meeting, you have three people doing 70% of the talking. So you want to get around that problem and a few ways to do it. Was one of their names Scott? (laughs) What's that?
0: Was one of those three people named Scott?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, But one way to get around the problem is you can go around the room and ask everybody to contribute. Um, You could do something called brainwriting, where you have everybody write down their idea on a post-it and then you've got a facilitator who takes those post-its and puts them at the front of the room for everybody to consider. So you're kind of eliminating the whole thing of people jockeying for position or some people feeling more entitled to speak than others. Um, it, It can also be really helpful to encourage people to or encourage one or two people to take on the role of devil's advocate or dissenting opinion so that you're making sure you get all the ideas out there.
0: So I know you're not a psychiatrist, but we have a question that's come in from one of the viewers that says, you know, what is your experience on people who have extreme introversion, you know, almost sort of maybe social anxiety, any uh, like sort of social avoidance anxiety, any tips you might have on, on coaching or dealing with colleagues in your life, in the workplace, on helping them you know, move to a state of maybe more comfortability with mm-hmm. um, extreme social anxiety?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, so first, just um, before talking about what to do about it, just kind of definitionally, social anxiety is actually different from introversion. Um, introversion is much more just, you know, the preference to operate in these quieter and more deliberate ways, um, and social anxiety is more about extreme shyness or fear of social judgment. Um, and in practice, like the work that we do at Quiet Revolution, is really about both of these two states. Even though you could be a really shy extrovert who loves being around people and in high energy situations once they get over their initial anxiety. Um, And you could be an introvert who's not shy at all. Okay, so having said that, for somebody with high high social anxiety, or any fear really, this one happens to be the fear of people judging you, but it could be the fear of heights or anything else. The way to, to address it is you have to expose yourself to the thing that you fear in very small and very manageable doses. So I'll I'll give you my own example. I I used to be terrified of public speaking. And the way I overcame this was by going to a seminar for people who were afraid of public speaking. And uh, on the first day of the seminar, all we had to do was stand up, say our names, sit back down, declare victory, and you're done. Um, And then you'd go back. The next week, and you would just stand up and answer a few questions about yourself, where did you grow up, where did you go to school, sit back down, you're done. And you keep going, and little by little by little, you actually are able to mostly extinguish a fear. So if you're talking about a colleague um, who has pretty severe social anxiety that's standing in their way, that's really the pathway for them. Um, and it might be joining a group like Toastmasters, or it could be joining a group that's explicitly for social anxiety, but that's the way forward.
0: And it really does work. In addition to doing a lot of public speaking and writing, you also consult with organizations. If and when you go into an organization, you meet with perhaps the CHRO or you know a learning and development leader, what advice do you give them organizationally to help promote and expose, not expose in a positive way, right, gain exposure for introverts, are there any any blanket advice you might give HR leaders on how to help introverts find their voice and you know work well with you know a culture that you say you know primarily rewards extroverted personalities? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I mean, one thing on an organizational level that you can do is identify people in who, who are influential and well respected in the organization and who are introverts and figure out a forum for them to come forward and talk about their temperament and how it has been an asset to them that has been a contribution that everyone's benefiting from, um, and what are the ways that it's been a struggle and that they've been uh, dealing with that struggle. You know, So really to kind of open up this discussion, um, and as I also suggested, to get teams talking to each other about this stuff. Um, on a more individual level, I, I, I would actually encourage everybody listening today to think of someone you know, might be you, might be a colleague, um, but someone you know at your company who is very talented and who you think is probably not a natural leader and might get passed over for a leadership position, and sit down with that person and map out with them their personal plan of ambition. Um, Because people often assume that a quiet person is less ambitious, even though That might not be the case at all. So find out from them, where do they want to be in one year, in three years, in five years? What are the steps that they can take to get there? Uh, Where are the strategic places that they could go outside of their comfort zone, little by little? What are the strengths that they can draw on? Um, You know, could they do something like if they've got a particular expertise? Okay, let's sit down and think about what are the ways that you can showcase that expertise so that more people in the company actually know about it? Um, Could you write a a newsletter? Could you get up and give a five minute talk about it? You you look for um, places that are kind of high bang for the buck, uh, places to showcase all that that person has to offer. Uh,
0: Speak right now to then two groups separately that are joining us today. Talk for a few minutes to the uh, self prescribed introverts in today's interview. What advice tactically would you give them to help them in their own careers? Assume they have no one that's their champion or coach, they're competent obviously, just as competent as any extrovert. What advice would you give them when they're working with extroverts to make sure that you know, their work's being valued, that they're being promoted, that they're not having people take credit for their work? Any advice you might speak to introverts directly?
1: Yeah. Well, okay. One piece of advice, and I'd give this to anybody, but it's especially true for introverts or for anyone who feels, for whatever reason, disempowered um, in their workplaces, expertise is huge. So, like, figure out figure out how you can cultivate a particular area of expertise in your field that is deeply valued, and that is going to be such a source of power for you, because everybody is going to want what you have to offer and what you have to say, and it's going to give you a form of confidence that no amount of you know kind of gauzy self-talk can do. Um, but if you've really got the substantive goods, you're going to know it, and that's going to convey itself. So that's kind of a long-term plan. Um, I'll give you another technique you can use, which is when you go into meetings, think in advance before you get to the meeting. What is the thing you want to contribute, or ask, or point you want to make? Um, and first of all, think okay. Is there, do I have an ally in this meeting? Is there somebody who I could talk to beforehand um, who might feel the same way that I do, who might want to back me up or amplify what I'm going to say? And then once you get into the meeting, give yourself a push to speak up early because uh, the ideas that get advanced early become kind of anchoring ideas and other people will start directing their comments to you because you were one of the people to speak first and they'll make eye contact with you. And so emotionally, you'll start to feel more in the things. Whereas if you wait longer, you start to kind of emotionally drift to the margins. And it's not that you can't get back from there. You definitely can. But it's a lot easier if you start there in the first place. So try that.
0: And similarly, what advice would you give to our extrovert audience to be more, um, I'm not sure if the word is thoughtful or respectful or accommodating, you know, as a, as a self-prescribed you know, extrovert, uh, what advice would you give me on how I pull out what I know is the value and the contribution of a introvert and make sure that I or other extroverts aren't dominating the meeting or the project or the conversation so that uh, the other genius and brilliance in the room can come out as much? What, what advice would you give extroverts?
1: Well, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with meeting people where they are and how they want to work. So, I, I would take them as individuals and find out from them, like, how do you like to get your best work done, you know, and how do you, how do you most like to share your ideas? So like, a lot of introverts will tell you they get their best work done when they can really sit and focus and know that they won't be interrupted. Um, okay, so how do you make that happen? I don't know. It is different at every workplace. M- maybe in one workplace it it would be feasible to say every Tuesday and Thursday mornings we will not have meetings. You know, we are just blocking off that time for deep think work. Um, or maybe it is possible to telecommute some of the time. You know, the, the, the solution is going to be different depending on the organization. Um, and in terms of actually running meetings some of the time you can get the best of a person's brain by talking to them one-on-one instead of having the all hands um, when you do have the all hands make sure you're not having too many people in the room because that's that's never effective for anybody um and you know I, I really love it i don't know how many of you have uh, followed what we've learned about the way jeff bezos runs meetings at amazon but i think there's a lot of wisdom in it um so from what i understand he uh, But before a meeting happens, whoever is in charge of it has to write out a really well-thought-through memo describing what the subject at hand is, a four- or five-page memo. So that alone takes about a week of preparation, but you're really doing deep thinking to get there. Then everybody shows up to the meeting, and they spend the first half hour of the meeting reading that memo silently together. And only after that process has been gone through do people start to talk about it. And that, I, I think that's really in general, but also from a temperament point of view, because it's making sure that everybody's engaging at a level that's not about performance and, and you know, dominance displays, but just about dealing with what is the subject here and doing it in a really thought-through way. And, and for introverts, it means that they have the time to process what they're looking at before they actually speak about it.
0: Susan, you'll be delighted to know that one of our viewers just wrote in a question and said she works at Amazon and validates your uh, assessment of how effective the meeting structure is there. So you're right on target. (laughs) Thank you. Speak to some of the common misconceptions about introverts. What are some of the, you know, wives' tales about introverts that just in fact aren't true, or just have been, you know, sort of, you know, spun wildly?
1: I would say the biggest one is that introverts are antisocial and don't like people. I mean that is huge. And what we need to realize is this is in the psychological literature there's no uh, correlation between the traits of warmth and caring about people and the traits of introversion and extroversion. So, you know, an extrovert and an introvert are equally likely to be warm and affectionate people. Um, the question is how do these traits display themselves? So For an extrovert who is defined by needing a lot of stimulation, uh, if you're a people liking extrovert, you're going to want to interact with a lot of people at a time and to do it in kind of big and noisy circumstances. And if you're a person loving it, people loving introvert, you're going to probably want to get together one on one in a quieter type of way or maybe socialize around shared interests. And and I think that's really the biggest thing. So, uh, but what. Introverts also do need to understand is that when you're just feeling quiet or thoughtful, other people can interpret that as you not liking them. The thing is, because we're such social beings and we're evolutionarily designed to um, interact with each other in tribes, we're all incredibly sensitive to feeling pushed out or disliked in some way. Um, so, what what might feel to you like just a kind of quiet and inwardly directed moment can feel to somebody else like a form of social rejection. And I think this is it's a it's something important for introverts to know. But it's also just a great it, it's a great way of turning it around, especially for those of you who feel shy. That your job in life is not so much to win the approval of the people around you as to make the other people around you comfortable. Like just remember, they're all vulnerable no matter how blustery they appear on the surface. They're all vulnerable. Um, So show them that you like them and they'll, they'll be happy, you'll be happy. It's kind of a virtuous cycle.
0: Susan, what advice would you give to introverts who are in senior leadership positions that have members of their team that are extroverts Uh, Is it the same advice in terms of asking, um, having them ask extroverts how they want to share their information? I guess they know because the extroverts share it. Any advice you would give, you know, um, introverts who are leaders on how to deal with extroverts?
1: Yeah, I mean, the introverted leaders I've spoken to have told me they often have to kind of remind themselves to do the outward facing stuff, you know, because they're, their inclination would be to focus more on the part where you know you're like sitting at your desk and figuring out what the strategy should be and so on. Uh, um, so you might want to do something like schedule two periods of time throughout your day where you where those are your your times to check in with your team, check in with other people, and like show your outward-facing self. Um, or there's one introverted CEO who's an engineer. He was talking about when he first started. You know, he would walk through the halls of his company. Often deep in thought and kind of looking at the floor, and and then he realized that he's the CEO now. So when he does that, people feel like the CEO doesn't like them. You know, for him, he was just being an engineer and acting the way engineers do. Um, But he had to start kind of managing his self-presentation a little bit more. And I think that's especially important when you are managing extroverts who really want to have that interaction and want to have that sense of, of, uh, you know,
0: of back and forth. That reminds me of an experience I had once prior to coming to our headquarters job as the chief marketing officer. I used to run a large sales division in Chicago. And so I had stewardship over about, I don't know, 15 states and maybe 15 or 20 salespeople. And most of them, you know, in sales were fairly extroverted, outgoing, gregarious. It was sort of a competition when we would get together for sales meetings as to which one of them could jockey for the best seat and also, you know, get the boss's attention. And I remember one particular meeting, we had a client partner, that's the name of our salesperson, who you know after two days of meetings, this person was very quiet, would take notes, would rarely speak up. And inevitably, after sort of the quarterly sales meeting, that person would call me. And I would be frustrated during the meetings that she was either checked out or not listening. And I knew she wasn't goofing off. I just I, I would find myself as an extrovert being frustrated that they weren't contributing much. And then would inevitably, after these quarterly meetings, this person would call me, and she would say, you know, Scott, on Tuesday in the morning, you said this at around 10 o'clock, and it kind of has me confused. I mean, she would, you know, recap with exact detail what I had mm-hmm. said. When I bet you, conversely, most of the gadflies in the room or the extroverts, you know, hadn't been listening at all. But it sat with me to think, because her style was quite introverted, at least compared to mine, had no correlation to her um, level of engagement or the fact that at the time I thought she was maybe checked out, but in fact she proved to me that she was probably more engaged than anybody in the room by the nature of her, you know, exact recall. And for me, mm-hmm. it's kind of a good memory that, you know, because you're not talking it doesn't mean you're not fully engaged.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, if you're the one running things, like don't you want to hear um, and know, and get the best of the brains of the people who aren't necessarily saying as much. And so, you know, w- what could you do to actually harness what's inside those brains? Um, and I always say, you know, I, probably the best thing is not an all-hands meeting. Like the, An employee like the kind you were describing, if, 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 if you had that person working with you still, I, I would say, you know, make sure you're figuring out other ways to know what's inside that brain, because she probably has an awful lot to contribute. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also figure out what works for her when she is in meetings that would get her to contribute. And sometimes it can be something as simple as giving that person the floor. Like, you know, if you know that she's particularly insightful about topic X, say to her in advance, you know, I, I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts today in the meeting on topic X because I know you have a lot of insights to share. And now she's kind of been invited to take the floor and she'll probably rise to it.
0: You're exactly right. I mean, she had massive contributions and still does. I mean, you know, a significant contributor to our company. Susan, in our final minutes, let's take it personal, maybe out of the workplace, um, perhaps as a parent or a, a sibling or a partner or friend. What advice would you give any of us who have discovered or uncovered that perhaps one of our, our children is, you know, more quiet and introverted as you see kind of the future of business and, you know, and where that sort of that puck is going? What advice would you give to parents who have perhaps a more um, shy or retiring child? I know they're not, that's not exclusive with always being introverted. Any advice you might give us in, in our personal lives around supporting and nurturing the talents of people who might not be as extroverted as another child? Who might, who might be taking yeah. you know more of their share of time and attention?
1: Yeah, this is a subject that's really near and dear to my heart. And... Um and I'm not. I know I'm not going to have time to tell you everything that I wish I could tell you. So I'm just. I'm going to tell you some stuff in a sec. But I'm also going to say I have a whole chapter of the book that's just about kids, and also on our website we've got tons of stuff about kids. So if you are parenting such a child, um, there's so much to know. But um, gosh, where to start? I, probably the number one thing is to know that whatever is in your heart and mind about that child the child is going to pick it up they're going to know it um doesn't matter what you say they'll feel it so you really need to get to a place if you're not there already where you see your child's temperament for all the richness and the coolness that it has um so your child knows that you feel it and then the big question that comes up all the time in parenting shy or quiet children is when should I honor their preference to maybe stay home and chill out, and when should I push them or require them to do something that makes them uncomfortable? And uh, there's no there's no answer to this that's always right or always wrong. But I, I would ask yourself, well, what are the place, what are the the areas that they absolutely have to do either because it's just some kind of social obligation um, or because you know that once they get to the other side of their fear or discomfort, they're actually going to shine in that activity. And those are the places where it's worth the extra push. And you have to understand that these kids have what I call a longer runway before they take off and fly. So if you imagine a kid, let's say, who is uh, uncomfortable swimming, um, the, the answer is not to kind of punitively say to them, you've got to swim. You know. The, throw you in the deep end. Um, But the answer, of course, is not, well, you never need to learn how to swim. It's a basic life skill and source of happiness. But you take them with you little by little by little. So maybe you bring them to the pool on a day when the pool is really quiet, Um, you know, at the end of the day, let's say. And maybe they dip their toe in the water and you declare victory and you go home. And then you come back on another quiet day and they go in a little bit deeper. And like little by little, they get there and eventually that kid is going to love how to, is going to love swimming. maybe great at it, and you won't be able to tell them apart from the kid who jumped in on day one. But for your child, they need to know that you are there with them on that long runway, that you get what they're feeling and you respect it, um, and that you're good with the whole process, because that's part of the reality. And I, I don't think you can really do that until you also acknowledge to yourself that. That does take extra work. Um, It's emotionally harder. There are moments where it's embarrassing uh, that your friends' kids will run and do things and your child won't, but that's okay. That's just part of the deal. And, um, and, you know, your child will be beautiful and great and successful and everything else.
0: Susan, have you found any of your research and all your um, discussions and online work that extroverted parents tend to raise extroverted kids or introverted is there any correlation there at all or
1: you know i don't know about that because there well there's a lot of data that shows that about half of um half of couples are introvert extrovert sort of yin yang couples mm-hmm. and so those couples from a genetic point of view tend to produce kids that are all over the map so you 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 see all varieties, right? I, I see a lot of extroverted parents raising introverted kids, um, feeling kind of mystified by them. Um, and you see the reverse and every every other kind of combination. I and, you I, you know, and I do think the different combinations each have their own set of pros and cons. So extroverted parents have more work to do in terms of understanding what their child is thinking and feeling. Um, but they can also be really beneficial to, you know, a child who might take things with an extra degree of, of care and caution can you know, borrow a little bit of the more carefree attitude of their extroverted parent um, and vice versa.
0: I ask because you know, I, 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 although I have reputational confusion, <laughs> I, <laughs> my style is extroverted, my wife is the opposite, very much introverted, but we have three sons under eight and I feel like they absolutely have more of my personality, her character, but my personality. And I wonder if, if extroverted parents have a stronger influence on their children's proclivity than an introverted parent.
1: Oh, I wouldn't say that at all. Right. No, because I mean, well, partly it's it's a, you know inherited temperament, and also parents have all kinds of ways of. Being really close with their children and right. having an influence on their children, right. and it has little to do with how um, loudly one speaks or how often one speaks. It has much. I think it's a much more has much more to do with deep emotional connections when you're talking about parents and kids.
0: I worry that in half an hour, I'm going to get an email from an email from you with a psychiatrist recommendation in Salt Lake City. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, gosh, no, no, no. <laughs>
0: Susan, and you know and I'm married couple... to an
1: extrovert, also. <laughs>
0: Uh, in our final couple of minutes, I want to talk a bit about kind of the reach you have across the world. So you've been researching and writing and speaking, you have a large you know, speaking part of your business, you keynote conferences, you're available to keynote. You also have you a know, website and workshops and a newsletter. Uh, take a minute and talk about how, if a client wants to engage with you, how they can subscribe to your newsletter and how they can even hire you to come in and speak in their organization.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so. Uh, our newsletter is uh, through Quiet Revolution. So if you go to quietrev.com, you can sign up for the newsletter. Um, and also on quietrev.com, there's a, there are various forms that you can fill out if you're interested in having me come into Keynote or if you'd like to do a workshop at your organization, you just fill out the forms and, and uh, we go from there.
0: Thanks, Susan, I can attest to seeing you. You keynoted a conference that I attended a couple of years ago in Salt Lake. And you brought the house down, although from a very quiet sort of way. And uh, you're a delight to have today an interview. My my brother just emailed in the the, um, chat pod and said, it's official, introverts rock. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well tell your brother a big hi from me <laughs> that was a really that. lovely story I Susan Not what
0: him. an honor Thanks. thank you for your time massive impact your book is having really giving voice to uh, I'm sure millions of um, introverts and really having an influence on extroverts and how to you know work well and see that introverts have you know uh, the same in- impact uh, as extra- extroverts so thank you for your time have a great weekend We're we're pleased you joined us thank you so much thank you so much Scott I really enjoyed chatting with you Thank you so much, Susan. And everybody, thank you for joining us. Uh, We'll see you again next week with another thought leader. We're honored you spoke to us or had time with us for this hour. And we'll see you next week. Thanks so much.